It was a young Charles Haddon Spurgeon who started one of his sermons at the age of 20 before thousands of people in London with these amazing words, a bit of a paraphrase. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a human being is the existence, the name, the nature, and the work of the almighty God of the universe. Nothing so shapes and fills and expands the minds of human beings like thinking great thoughts and true thoughts about God. So whenever you study the scriptures and you get a glimpse of God, there are times when your mind pops because you can't contain it all. You get enough that causes you to realize you cannot contain it all because he is so great. And yet we're told in the book of Jeremiah chapter 29, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast of his might, nor let the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, the God of loving kindness, the one who exercises loving kindness and justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight. God delights when you think great thoughts of him based on the truth of scripture that are accurate with who he is and what he thinks and what he does. Years ago, I came across an article written by a Bible teacher his name was A.W. Pink, Arthur Pink. And he, he wrote some very interesting articles. This one caught my attention because he basically said this. Our New Testaments have an interesting feature. There are only three verses that give to us the very nature of God with the formula God is. And then you fill in the blank. There are many verses that talk about the attributes of God, but only three times, said Pink, in the New Testament do you have verses that declare and reveal his essence. God is blank. Share them with you quickly. They're all in John's writings, by the way. And all of them have, uh, have a wonderful invitation to human beings to come and know this God. The first is in John chapter four, verse 24. God is spirit. Not a spirit, there are many spirits out there. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Given to the woman at the well, you might recall, who in talking with Jesus was debating about where should we worship? Our mountain, Samaritans, uh, Gezerim, or should we go all the way to Jerusalem where you Jews worship? It was a bit of a deflection because the Lord Jesus had come home to her heart with conviction about her own relationships and her need of living water. But Jesus said, you know, the time is coming and now is when it doesn't make any difference about location because God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and 
in truth. He is, in essence, immaterial, non-corporal being, without a body, invisible, and also indestructible. And because he is spirit, location is not an issue. We often make location for our worship a priority, don't we? We build cathedrals and we have to be in a certain place and I can't pray unless I'm in this place or this church. But God is everywhere present because he is spirit. And there's a must connected with this revelation of God. You must worship him, how? In spirit. And in truth. In other words, all the externals mean absolutely nothing. If the heart is not right, God would say, I am tired and sick of your sacrifices, even though he commanded them. But he was sick of them because they brought them with a heart that was far from God. And if you're going to worship God, you must worship him in spirit and in truth. Your spirit to his, primarily. And in honesty and sincerity. And there's some gospel in this as well. For as Jesus talked to the woman at the well, he said, if you knew who it was who was talking to you, and you took a drink of what I offered, you would never thirst again. Because what I offer you is eternal life. Whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up into everlasting life. That's the first one. God is spirit. The second one in the writings of John come from the little epistle of 1 John, the last two. In 1 John chapter 1, this is the message We've heard from him and declare to you that God is light. He's not a light. He's not one of the lights. He is light. Indeed, the source of it, the origination of true light. Light is something pretty interesting. In this context, it's pure. It is the light that touches every man that comes into the world, John's Gospel, chapter 1. It's diffusive, it penetrates, it's everywhere, it's life-giving. Psalm 102 says, or 104 says, God covers himself with light like a garment, and Jesus is the light of the world. Now, what is he referring to here? Well, he tells us in 1 John chapter 1, if you claim to have fellowship with God and walk in darkness, you're lying and not speaking the truth. But if you walk in the light as he is in the light, you can have fellowship with God. You can have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, will cleanse you from all sin. So the idea is that God is holy and cannot just connect with human beings without some kind of cleansing. He's light. And we are tainted with sin and death. But the blood of Jesus Christ, there's a gospel. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And where is the must in this verse? If you're going to walk with God, you must walk 
in the light because that's where he is. You don't get to choose the location in that sense. You must walk where God is and God is holy and you must become holy and you aren't. Thus the blood of Christ and the good news of the gospel. But then we have one more and this is found in 1 John chapter four where it simply says, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. In verse 16, it repeats the same thing. God is love. He is a lover in the sense of loving the souls of men, but he is love. He defines love. It is his essence. There's a great invitation when we read that God is spirit and he invites us to worship him in spirit and in truth. There's a wonderful invitation from the holy God, the God of light, who says, walk with me in light and we'll have fellowship together. And now there is this wonderful invitation from the God of love who says there is so much hatred in the world, you cannot know me and live in hatred. Whoever does not love, doesn't know God because God is love. And where's the gospel in this? Verse 10 of chapter four. This is love. I mean, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. If God loved us, and we know God, we have to love one another. Now, isn't that an amazing revelation of the essence, the nature of God? And should we not every day be responding to that and enjoying the light and the one who is always with us, the spirit of God, and to enjoy sharing the love of God with those who are broken and hurting? But if I had a chance to talk to A.W. Pink, I might say, well, you know, I think there might be one more. <laughs> you always have to criticize what people do, right? I think you missed one. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 29 that says, God is fire. I did a little bit of research on the verse in our translations, it says that our God is a consuming fire. But there is no indefinite article. He's not a fire. It says our God is consuming fire. The word fire has been put together with a prefix that intensifies it, so it's not just fire. It's fire that destroys it's fire that consumes. It's relentless. It is destructive. And it is final. Our God is a consuming fire. By the way, that's a quotation taken from the book of Deuteronomy chapter four, which is what happened on that mountain we read about Pastor Doug read about a few moments ago, earlier on in chapter 12, 
We don't come to a mountain you can touch like Sinai with the thunder and the fire and the shaking. We don't come to that mountain. We come to Mount Zion. This is the mountain of the gospel. The first is the mountain of the old covenant, which could never save, could only condemn. But now the Mount Zion representing the finished work of Christ on the cross, the new covenant, that's the whole argument in the book of Hebrews. We come to Mount Zion where there's grace and forgiveness and eternality with him. But I find it interesting that this concept of the fact that God is fire comes back up again. I thought we left it on the other mountain. And that's what many Christians would love to do with the subject of the wrath of God. Let's leave it to another age. Let's take it out of our hymnals. Let's not talk about it in church. Let's retranslate our scriptures so we soften it if we do not eliminate it. And we neuter God, at least we attempt to. But God, God cannot and will not be changed. He's immutable, which means he cannot be changed. He's always the same, just as Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the God of fire. I I read about that in the Old Testament. Sometimes we say, well, the God of the New Testament's different than the God of the Old Testament. I say, we, we never do, some people do. The God of the Old Testament is exactly the same as the God of the New Testament. There's been greater revelation as to his mercy and grace in the person of Christ, but it's the same God. Do you not recall what happened on Mount Carmel when Elijah met with the prophets of Baal? 450? And the people couldn't decide who were they going to serve. If God is God, serve him. If Baal's God, serve him. And the people didn't say a word. So Elijah said, let's have a contest. And it'll be on Mount Carmel, and you guys, you can make a sacrifice and call on your God, and the God who answers by fire is the true God. You call on your God, and so they did that from morning until evening, and nothing happened. They cut themselves, they yelled, they danced, they did all kinds of stuff. None of it worked, because Baal doesn't exist. But then Elijah comes, and he puts up his sacrifice, had to rebuild the altar, for Yahweh, for Jehovah, because it had been torn down on Mount Carmel. He rebuilt it, put the sacrifice on it, and then doused it with water, which doesn't go well with fire. Just to show that his God is great. And instead of speaking for hours, he said, Lord, let them see that you're the God of heaven. And fire came. And you know what it did? It was consuming fire. It consumed the sacrifice and it licked up the water, and I think even took away the stones. And it was clear that the God of fire is the true God of heaven. We read in Isaiah 33, the sinners in Zion are terrified, trembling grips the godless. Who of us can dwell with a consuming fire? Who of us can dwell with everlasting burning? 
And the answer is, none of us. Or Zephaniah chapter 3, I've decided to assemble the nations, the Lord says, to gather the kingdom, to pour out my wrath and all my fierce anger. The whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. God's a loving God. God's a merciful God. God is a just God. God is a righteous God. God is a holy God. He's a God of love, and he's a God of wrath against sin. We read about it in Hebrews chapter 10. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sin is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies. Of God. In each of those quotations from Isaiah, Zephaniah, and Hebrew, you have the concept of consuming fire. And that's who our God is the God who is consuming fire. So, we jumped ahead a little bit, didn't we, to understand this new essence of God. And now let's read the text beginning with verse 25. After talking about the two mountains, one of law and judgment and one of grace and mercy, he basically says, which one are you going to choose? Verse 25, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, speaking of Moses on Mount Sinai, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. So if an earthly message can be rejected with great punishment and there's no escape, how can we escape if we neglect him who speaks from heaven? By the way, this argument, there are about seven or eight warning passages in the book of Hebrews. The first one, I think, was chapter two, and now this is the last one, and these are almost identical with the whole idea of if we don't listen to an earthly messenger, what will happen to us if we reject the heavenly messenger of the new covenant, the Lord Jesus, whose voice is stronger? There is no escape. How can we escape if we neglect so great a salvation. So, write it down, we must obey. We must surrender. We must believe him who speaks. And I like the wording when the scripture says that we, we are coming to a mountain or we have come to Mount Zion. We are coming to Jesus. It's interesting that in, in our language, there is a come to Jesus moment. Have you ever heard that? Yeah, people use it all the time. They don't know what they're saying, although they think like this is, you know, just a time to wake up and see reality, which is kind of good because a come to Jesus moment is really a moment where you realize you're a sinner and you come to Christ in faith. But there will be a come to God moment for all who have rejected the come to Jesus moment. We must obey him who speaks from heaven. Look at verse 26. At that time his voice shook the earth. 
You read about it in Exodus 19 at Mount Sinai. Smoke billowed up like smoke from a furnace and the whole mountain trembled violently. Have you ever been in an earthquake? I have been in one so mild I didn't know it happened. But you know, I say, oh yeah, I've been in an earthquake. <laughs> it's nothing like, you know, everything falling off the shelves and the house going into a hole and a whole mountain shaking. That's serious business. Then this, by the way, verse 26 is a quotation from Haggai chapter two. This is what the Lord Almighty says, in a little while I will once again shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. At one time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. I'm told this is in the perfect tense, which simply means it is a definite event that will have ongoing results. It will happen as promised. It intensifies the validity of the argument. God has promised, verse 20. Do you see the word promise in verse 26? I went through the book of Hebrews and there are 18 of them. This is the only one that's negative. Every other promise is better promises. Promises given to Abraham. God promises that he, he will not lie. He takes an oath. All the promises of God are yea and amen. Every one of them, including this one. I promise, God says, I will shake the earth again. Not just the earth, but the heavens. That's judgment. Verse 27, the words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is created, so that what cannot be shaken might remain. This sounds violent. It is. It sounds horrible, like there's no way you could escape from it. That's true. No way of escape when God shakes the world. You and I are undergoing a lot of shaking right now, aren't we? I mean, it's almost like someone grabs hold of you and just shakes you. You have no control of it, someone stronger than you, the circumstances, and you're being you know, thrown this way and that way. We're just being shaken. But for the believer, look at verse 28. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken... Let us be thankful. And so worship God ex acceptably with reverence and awe. So in the end, God has promised he will shake the heavens and the earth, but there is a kingdom that won't be shaken, and everyone in that kingdom will not be shaken because they have been saved from the wrath through Christ. You say, I don't believe that. It doesn't make any difference whether you do or not. It's going to happen. I don't think God would ever do that. God is fire. He's holy. He's righteous. He's given you a chance to turn and repent. And if you won't, you will be shaken. You say, this sounds a lot like hellfire and brimstone. Yeah, it kind of does, because it kind of is. 
Christians belong to a spiritual kingdom, not an earthly one like Mount Sinai. We belong to an eternal kingdom like Mount Zion that will live forever. And we belong to an unshakable kingdom. And that is amazing. Listening to people who have gone through the last hurricane, uh, Ian in, in Florida, people who have been through a lot of hurricanes said, boy, this was different. This was different. And they waited it through, and some made it, and some did it, but didn't, but they were really shaken. Wouldn't it be great if you had a place in Florida where you could go where no one would be shaken? That they built some kind of structure, now that you couldn't get of all, all the Floridians in there, but if you had a place that could not be shaken, it couldn't get wet, it couldn't be damaged, it couldn't be threatened. We have a kingdom just like that, secure for us in heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ as king, and we will never be shaken. I'm looking forward to that day. You say, how do you get into that kingdom? Well, the Bible tells us you are to acknowledge that you're a sinner. You are to come to him, verse 25, see that you don't refuse him who speaks, Come to him, acknowledge that you're a sinner. Cry out for forgiveness. Pray that God will take you in his mercy. And when you come with an honest heart, he saves. And he transfers from the kingdom that will be shaken to the kingdom that can never be shaken. Kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. The kingdom of this world to the kingdom of his son. And in that kingdom, you rejoice forevermore. And what are we to do in that kingdom? Well, look at verse 28. Therefore, since we've received a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let's be thankful. Let's be thankful for our unshakable kingdom. In other words, you've got to focus on it. You've got to understand it. You've got to look forward to it, hope for it, and live in the light of it. Yeah, beat me now, but one day when Jesus comes, his church will be triumphant, totally triumphant. Be thankful. We spend too much time looking at the things that are being shaken instead of the one who can never be shaken. We attach our passion to things that don't last and then cry when they're gone. Oh, I know we have to have some attachment to some things, and certainly with other people. That's healthy and good. But your attachment needs to be better than just to people who are going to pass away. It's got to be connected to the one who cannot be shaken. So be thankful for this unshakable kingdom, and then worship God acceptably with reverence and fear. Worship, God is... God is multifold in one sense. He has revealed himself to us uh, as Abba, Father, whereas his adopted children, and he wants to draw us close in his arms. But never are we to become flippant with God and forget that God is fire. He's a consuming fire, the scripture says. 
I find it interesting that he pulls this out of the whole analogy of Mount Zion and brings it right back at the very end. But God's fire, which consumes, does two things. It consumes sinners who reject him. And it cleanses sinners who trust him. The consuming fire of God fell on Christ on the cross and burned away all sin. All my sin on him was laid. And he took the wrath of God for me. No fire coming to the believer who has hidden themselves in Christ. And that's why we need to worship him with gratitude but with reverence, awe, and even godly fear. Let us respond in faith and obedience. Let us be thankful. Let us obey God. Let us thank God. And let us worship God. That's what comes out of all of this. And to the person who bows in a, with a grateful heart and a humble soul and honestly trusts Christ as Lord and Savior, they gain everything. And to the person who rejects Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, they lose everything. Martin Luther used to say, that the judgment ways of God are his strange ways. He was writing a little commentary based on Isaiah 28. The Lord will rise up as he did at Mount Perizim. He will rouse himself as in the valley of Gibeon to do his work, his strange work, and to perform his task, his alien task. And what was his task? The very next verse is destruction on the nations. God is a God of love and has chosen to love people and he created us to express his love that we might have fellowship with him but we rebelled and introduced this horrible thought of judgment. God came up with a way of salvation but we still reject that. And when we do, there's nothing left but the strange ways of God, the alien ways of God, where he must punish sin, and he does. Let me encourage you to have a biblical, well-balanced view of God. I'm reading from A.W. Tozer, one of my favorite authors, an introduction to a book called The Knowledge of the Holy, this is one of my favorite introductions. The church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted for it one so low, so ignoble as to be utterly unworthy of thinking and worshiping people. This low view of God, entertained almost universally among Christians everywhere, is the cause of a hundred lesser evils. Have a wrong view of God and sin will flow. And evil will flow in your life. 
The alarming thing is that our gains in the church today are mostly externals and our losses wholly internal. And since it's the quality of our religion that is being affected by in our internal conditions, it may be that our supposed gains are but losses spread over a wider field. We've lost this majestic view of God, but we seem to keep going and sometimes prosper. But the prosperity may be defeat spread over a wider field because we've lost God as he really is. The only way to recoup our spiritual losses is to go back to the cause of them and make such corrections as the truth warrants. The decline of the knowledge of the holy has brought on our troubles and so a rediscovery of the majesty of God will go a long way toward curing them. It is impossible to keep our moral practices sound, our inward attitudes right, while our idea of God is erroneous or inadequate. And if we would bring back spiritual power to our lives and our churches, we must begin to think of God more rightly as he is. Does that apply to us? It certainly does. So I pray that God will give me and you as well a revival of the knowledge of the holy. For this is what he delights in. Not the mighty, not the rich, But those who understand and know me, that I am the God who executes loving kindness and righteousness and judgment in the earth, for in these things I delight. Let's pray. Lord, what a sobering way to end chapter 12. And yet every warning passage is surrounded by and dominated with invitation passages, mercy passages. Indeed, this is your strange way, but you're not unfamiliar with these ways. And Lord, we know that one day you're going to shake the world and we have the opportunity to help prepare other people before that day comes. May we keep our sights set on the God who's in such control that his kingdom will never be shaken. And may our hearts, because you are love, love those around us by telling them good news about Jesus Christ in whose name we pray, amen.